Revelation chapter 15 is where we pick things up tonight on Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and this is where we find ourselves this evening then I heard another sign in heaven great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them the wrath of God is complete the book of Revelation in terms of the judgment that God pours out upon the earth during the tribulation period is a series of three sevens it is the wrath of God is poured out first through the seven the breaking of the seven seals that gives way then to the seven trumpets and now the final part of this uh, trilogy is so to speak is the pouring out of the seven bowls or the seven vials of of God's wrath and I saw something verse 2 like a sea of glass mingled with fire probably the same uh, sea of glass that he speaks about in chapter 4 I believe where uh, all of the saints are, are on that sea of glass before the throne of God here the sea of glass now has the element of being mingled with fire and probably a sign of, of God's purifying judgment that is about to come uh, upon the world uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 he describes our God as a consuming fire and so uh, perhaps the sea has become reflective of that now as is the fullness of and the finality of God's judgment is brought against man's rebellion against him here in these seven bowls and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having uh, harps of God this seems to refer to uh, those uh, tribulation saints those that come to know the Lord after the rapture and uh, and are as a result martyred by the Antichrist and the whole ungodly system that fills the world during uh, that time and they're spoken of these tribulation saints as having victory over the beast in other words he was uh, unable to get them to worship him uh, and and that was the reason for their martyrdom they have victory over his image he was unsuccessful in getting them to worship his image that he sets up in Jerusalem at the three and a half year mark of the seven year tribulation and they have victory over his mark and over the number of his name they refused his mark and uh, and thus were martyred because of it so they stand on this glassy sea mingled with fire and uh, there's a judgment that the world deserves for the martyring of these people for the simple reason that they had turned to Christ as their Savior and as their Lord they have uh, having the harps of God there as they wait for this judgment to unfold they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb and here's the song great and marvelous are your works Lord God Almighty just and true are your ways O King of the Saints who shall not fear you O Lord and glorify your name for you alone are holy for all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested it is the song of Moses and it is the song of the Lamb when it's referred to here as the song of Moses probably a reference to 
The song that Moses sang with the children of Israel recorded in Exodus chapter 15 following their deliverance from uh, the children of Israel's uh, deliverance from the bondage of Egypt and then following that deliverance God's destruction of Pharaoh's army uh, in the Red Sea uh, which sought to overtake them and bring them into bondage once again. Did anybody attempt to watch the Ten Commandments? Uh, in all of this. I don't know how. God, I don't, God bless you. He must have if you were able to endure uh, <clears throat> all of it. I got about through about three minutes and I said, all right, I know this is not good for my blood pressure. And if they want to do fiction, do fiction. But if you're going to do the Bible, do the Bible. And so uh, I- anyway, enough about my problems. So, but I- I- anyway, the, the, the true story is that's what is, is happening. And so the song that Moses sang was a song celebrating Redemption, celebrating God's deliverance from the wickedness of, of Egypt and the bondage of, of Egypt. And when uh, the army of Pharaoh was bearing down on Moses and the children of Israel, it looked like their deliverance out of, out of Egypt would be very, very short-lived and that they would be taken back into this horrible system of bondage and, and, and all. Moses spoke to the people and he said, look at these people. Look at them coming at us. In essence, this is what he says. Take a good hard look at them because you will never see them again. And they took a good hard look at that army that was bearing down on them. And it was true because Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh, the whole army, swallowed up and drowned in the Red Sea. The Song of Moses is a wonderful song. But it's called also the song of the Lamb because it's just a shadow of the greater redemption and the greater deliverance that we have in in the Lord Jesus. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of the devil. And Jesus has redeemed us from the world and delivered us from the devil. And these tribulation saints here that sing this song and us one day could celebrate the fact that despite all of the horror that they had been through in the world during the great tribulation, neither the world nor the devil would ever use them again, abuse them again, persecute or torment them ever again. That's over. That's what the song is about in heaven. Look at those people. You will never see them again. You'll never know what you went through during the Great Tribulation ever again. And the song is a very, very beautiful one. It celebrates four things related to God. It's a celebration of His works, celebration of His ways, celebration of His holiness and of His judgments. And His works are declared to be great and marvelous. His ways are called just and true, and they are. The celebration of His holiness there in verse 4 produces just a fear of God and a a sense of awe related to Him and then a celebration of God's judgments because His judgments bring an end to the wickedness and rebellion of man on the earth. It's too bad that it takes that. It's too bad that love wouldn't do that. It's too bad that the cross didn't do that. It has the power to do it. Love has the power to do it. But man's heart is so wicked that he will not respond to these other things. 
and he forces God into a place where God then must mete out his judgment to bring an end to man's wickedness and his rebellion upon the earth. And when he does that, you notice in this song, there's not a single complaint in the song. Nobody complains in heaven when that judgment is meted out. Instead, the righteousness, the trueness, the purity, the white-hot holiness of God's judgment is celebrated in heaven. It's like good enough, bring an end to this terrible thing that man's sin and his rebellion has turned the world and creation into. And it's all celebrated there in, in heaven. And then John sees in verse 5, into the temple of the testimony that's uh, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony that's open in heaven. It's opened. He looks and, and he sees this. When it refers here to this um, uh, temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven, remember in heaven that the temple and the tabernacle that was given to Moses uh, to build the tabernacle and then Solomon built the temple, all of it was a model of, of a heavenly scene. And when it talks about the testimony, it's a reference to the Ten Commandments that sat inside of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so that's what it's referring to uh, here. And, and that testimony here, John is communicating that God is going to apply the standard of his commandments and his word to the wickedness of this world, and the result is going to be judgment. These bowls of wrath come out of God just take, simply taking his Ten Commandments and his law and applying it to the moral and the, the uh, so-called spiritual and all condition of the world at this time. And then what the law demanded of man's unrighteousness and the consequences of violating God's law, all of that's brought to bear now upon the earth as a result of, of, uh, of the pouring out of these, these bowls. And so this judgment, it all comes out of the holiness of God. There's a right and there's a wrong in the universe. There's hardly a right and wrong in the United States anymore. Everything gets redefined and everything gets, oh, it's all just crazy. Can you imagine what God sees in this country and what he sees in this world on a given day? I mean, I open up, I open up the newspaper or I'll go online and watch some news and, and, or look at the headlines and that kind of stuff. And you see the fellow over in Iran threatening that Israel's going to be brought to an end sooner, not later. You see Russia backing up and protecting the regime there in Iran from, from sanctions. Then you read about this, this little 10-year-old girl, not only killed and murdered, but the guy was going to eat her. He had meat tenderizer in his apartment. He lived in the apartment right above her. And had the whole thing planned, he's going to eat her body. Wanted to know what that was like. And you just look out through this whole, and then, you know, my wife were reading the paper a little bit this afternoon. They got the travel section where they've got the nude crews. 
Now, come on. I mean, that's just, that's just an affront. And, and, and I'm not a goody two-shoes. I'm, I'm a goody two-shoes, but I'm not... I mean, I saw a little bit of life, too. But when you start... When you just keep taking sin further and further and further and further till it's just an affront to human sensitivity... And then we get used to it. Now they'll have multiple cruises like this, you know. Imagine what God, in the holiness of heaven, what He feels, what He sees, the wrath that is building toward this, while, while we just continue to get more and more used. Look at Africa, the whole place. I mean, these revolutions moving from Sudan now to Chad and Zimbabwe is a mess in Nigeria. I mean, it's just crazy everywhere what's going on. The corruption. He knows what goes on in every board meeting of every company in the world behind closed doors of all government meetings, all decisions that are made in, in secret. As we said before, you know, in an attempt to do the honorable thing in a dishonorable way. And all, he sees all of it. And he's going to take his righteousness and is going to be way worse during the Great Tribulation. And he's going to apply his, the holiness of his word against it. And it's just going to be like, it's just going to sizzle when it gets brought against that. There is a right and there is a wrong. Don't ever forget that. If they're never confused about it in heaven. And anyone who makes this book the single greatest influence in their life will never forget it too. There is a good and there is a bad. These things are not open to definition. They are not open to be defined. God knows what he's talking about. And the safe place is to accept his definitions and obey his definitions. But nobody will be thinking in those terms during the great tribulation. And the judgment that's poured out, no crying against God and how could God and how all of this guy, it is just simply him being righteous and being true to holiness, to himself, to his word that will cause this judgment to be poured out. That's where it comes from. That earthly temple has been completely defiled by the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. And, but the temple in heaven is completely unaffected by that. It remains holy and pure, meeting the beautiful standard of God's Word. And that standard is going to come out on the earth. And it's going to be characterized by judgment. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having chests girded with golden bands. And so these angels come forth dressed in the linen, pure and bright. Their bands, uh, their chests girded with golden bands. That's in a description of Jesus from chapter 1. So it speaks of these angels when they come forth now. It's a re-emphasis of God's holiness. They come forth, the clean white linen speaking of their purity, the golden band speaking of the fact that they come forth representing a king. And if the whole world doesn't realize that God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, heaven never forgets it. And so they come forth girded in this way and dressed and clothed in this way. And then one of the four living creatures, one of these angelic beings, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God 
who lives forever and ever. He's not going to pour out the love of God. He's going to pour out the wrath of God now. So there are the seven angels. You see sometimes when we have communion and the guys are standing up here and they're just standing there and I bring the trays to them and one of the other brothers brings the other trays and all. He comes and each one of them now is given a bowl, seven bowls of judgment to be poured out upon the earth. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, uh, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was completed. And so when these bowls are given to the seven angels, the, the Shekinah glory fills uh, the temple in heaven and uh, so that nobody can move, can come in or come out or any or come in, in into the temple at all until the plagues are over and it reminds us uh, of the two great events in the old testament where this uh, occurred and that is the dedication of the temple by moses in exodus chapter 40 god's glory came so great on that temple that there could be no one else ministering during, during that time, the dedication of the temple to the Lord by Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the same thing happened. And in both places, uh, the presence of, it, it represented the presence of God, the glory of his presence as he chose to, to dwell there. And so these bowls of wrath come out of the holiness of God. They come out of the, the power of God. And basically what's happening as, as the judgment is now given to go forth and kind of this, this temple seals up God with, with his glory, it means the judgment is now irreversible. God looks at it and says there's no priest, there's no angel, there's no anyone or anything that can come into the Holy of Holies and change my mind about the judgment now that brings this rebellion to an end. Nothing can stop or delay God's judgment. Now there are some people who believe that the reason that the door is closed by God at this time is because God is weeping as the finality of his judgment is, is poured out upon uh, the earth. And I, I don't know about that. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. We know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't enjoy not one single bit the death of a single wicked person. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11, the Lord spoke through Ezekiel and said, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And it's heartbreaking to him. Imagine God as he created the heavens and the earth, created man for fellowship and all, to love man, to have fellowship with him and all. And here man's sin in his rebellion has made God into the judge that he never wanted to be in a single person's life. God wants to be every person's savior, not their judge. But he gives man a free will in, in all of that. And then I heard chapter 16, verse 1, a loud voice from the temple, doubtless, from, from God as he is in, in there alone, so to speak. 
saying to the seven angels, Go and pour, forth, pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so he gives them the command now for the judgment to, to proceed. Notice that God's in charge of everything that's going on in, in the earth. He's the one that gives the orders. He, this is his neighborhood. This is his world. The devil's hijacked it. Wickedness has hijacked it and taken it away from him. But this is his neighborhood, and he's going to take, it, take control of that all back again one day. And so he, he releases that final judgment that's going to allow that uh, to, to happen. It's interesting, as the seven bowls of wrath are poured out, in, it, uh, in, in judgment that it's very much like when God poured his series of, of ten judgments out upon Egypt and Pharaoh while he was redeeming Israel out of Egypt. Those judgments that he poured out on Egypt, they weren't random. They weren't just, you know, kind of God was in some kind of a rage or whatever and ranting and raving in the living room of heaven or something and then just started spewing out kind of crazy things to do to Egypt. They were, they were very, very specific, very, very, very carefully chosen judgments that he brought against uh, Egypt. And they were carefully chosen to expose the false gods that Egypt was worshiping and to expose them as being powerless in the face of, of the Lord. And in the same way now as these seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the earth it exposes the devil it exposes the antichrist it exposes the false prophet as being powerless to stop it god is communicating to the world the antichrist is not god there's someone greater than him the devil is not god the false prophet is not god why can they not stop these plagues that god is pouring out don't continue to follow him and don't continue to follow all of their lies and their craziness. Find out the one who is able to judge them and they are powerless to stop the judgment. That must be the greater one, and that's God. And follow the one who's able to, to do that. As Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who is able to throw the soul and the body into hell. Anyone in their right mind on the earth at that time, but nobody's in their right mind at this time, would take and turn and say, man, am I on the wrong path? <laughs> and why can't these ones, this Antichrist that we're worshiping as God and the false prophet who keeps telling us that he's God, why, if they are God, can they not stop these judgments? God's still trying to reach them. He's still trying to get through to them. And so, verse 2, the first angel went and he poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So some kind of a, a sore, ulcerated, oozing kind of sore breaks out on their bodies. Doubtless very, very uh, unsightly, but that's not the biggest problem. Very, very painful. What's God doing? He is merely making them outwardly what they are inwardly. They are morally and spiritually and practically ulcers 
poisons to the earth. There's nothing beautiful about them. However, they were adorning themselves. And he simply says, let's expose what you are on the inside and, and make you the same thing on the outside. That's what, he, that's what he does. And would it be something if God, if God made our appearance, our outward appearance, like our hearts? Huh. It, would, it would definitely uh, promote Bible reading. Since that, that washes our hearts, it keeps our heart clean, it keeps our heart pure and all. And it's interesting that in this judgment, this, this first bowl, God makes a distinction between those who have the mark of the beast and those who've refused to take the mark. Again, his judgment, he's not up there like a crazy person that's lost control and you say, Dad's lost control, everyone run from the house, you know, to save your lives. His wrath and his judgment is measured. It's, it's purposeful and very controlled, very, very deliberate. He, he's very careful in how he is pouring out his judgment. And then notice in verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. When it talks about the sea, probably from where John was on the Isle of Patmos, it's referring to the Mediterranean Sea. It could be a, another sea than that, but probably the Mediterranean Sea. And as a result of this bowl, the sea became blood as of a dead man. Now, this is not unprecedented, is it, in human history? Remember when Moses and one of the plagues upon Israel took the staff and, and uh, uh, touched the waters of the Nile, all of it turned into blood. Can you imagine the stink of an entire ocean turning into blood? You ever smell blood? Imagine that much blood or something like that filling that, that whole area there. And we're told that uh, every living creature in the sea died. Now at the second uh, trumpet judgment, a third of the animals died within the sea. Now all of them die. And then in verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so here now, all of these waters and springs of water, they become blood. And the song in heaven is that this judgment is perfectly righteous because the population of the earth has murdered the saints, the righteous. They have taken and, and they've shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, so God gives them blood to drink. You like to shed blood? Well, then you're going to drink blood. I'll give you what you love uh, so much here. And he gives them their fill of blood. You like blood, do you? I'll give you your fill of blood. And it is so perfect of a judgment. I mean, justice is rarely so pure and so perfect for the crime 
And here is, he, he just matches it exactly. They are simply reaping what it is that, that, they, have, that they have sown. And then it, it, that group, that, uh, the other voice that comes there in verse 7 from under the altar, that's referring to, to uh, we've met them earlier in the book of Revelation, a reference to the tribulation saints who are in that place in heaven while all of this is unfolding. And just in case anybody thinks, uh, you know, that God's doing of this thing is some kind of an unjust thing or unrighteous, they chime in and say, no, this is true and this is righteous. In other words, the victims, they have, they have the greater voice in heaven, not the ones that mete out the, the crime and the violence. And they have been the ones that have died at the hands of all of these people. And when they hear this judgment unfold, that now they love blood so much, now they'll have only blood to drink. They look at it and they say, that is true and that is a righteous judgment. And then the fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And then they did not repent and give him glory. So now the men of the earth, they're scorched with this great heat, maybe a nova or something on, on the sun where there's that flash of energy and, and, uh, and, and the heat and, and all of that, and, and the people are scorched. Now, scorched is a strong word. That's worse than a sunburn. You remember your worst sunburn? Everybody remembers their worst sunburn. Everybody have a worse sunburn? Man, I remember mine probably about eight years old, Lake Tahoe. This, my brother and I, two beautiful little half Irish and half Scotsmen taken out into the burning sun <laughs> of Lake Tahoe in the summertime. And we played and we played and I don't know who was looking after us. But by the time we got done and pulled off that beach, there were already blisters before we went to bed that night. And I had never experienced anything like that before in, in my life. I mean, anybody even got near you. When you get a sunburn, what? Keep <laughs> your distance, buckaroo. I mean, whoo. So, but this is way worse than, than all of that. What's God doing? He's so just. He's so just. He's given them a foretaste of hell. He's giving them a foretaste of hell. They don't repent. Why does that get mentioned except that God is still desiring for them to repent, those that haven't taken the mark of, of the beast? It just gives them a foretaste of hell in the hopes that it will produce some kind of humility in them, some kind of repentance. Love hasn't done anything to them. And is there any repentance? There isn't. Instead, they blaspheme God. They blaspheme the God who has the power over these plagues. I mean, a, a, a sane person would say, I'm in way over my head in trying to resist this God. Uncle, I, I give up, I repent, you know, and, and they don't. And God is very, very careful to let us know. It's, it's worth underlining or noting in your mind anyway. And they did not repent. You know what that means? Personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. God is trying to get them to repent. 
And the fact that they do not repent is their decision, and they bear the consequences for it. And they, are the, they bear the responsibility for the continuation of the judgment on the earth. They're responsible for what it is that's, that's happening here. So they did not repent at all. You think about that. I mean, think about a person that is so determined to live a life of sin. Whatever sin that these people have attached themselves to, and maybe it's a hundred different sins, but they love their sin so much that even this will not move them away from their sin. That's crazy. That's crazy. And yet that's exactly the place that they're, they're in. I don't care what God does to me. I am not moving away from this sin. And they force God to raise up, you know, the anti-excuse, the expression related to things. Because with that kind of people in God, when they're dug in like that, either they're going to win and their vision for the earth is going to unfold, or God is going to win and his vision is going to unfold. They're not going to both win. And God, because he is wise and because he is righteous and because he is loving, he makes sure that those people do not win and that their rebellion and their sin and wickedness is brought to an end in human history. So it's fascinating now is they've got this burning that's on them. They're scorched with, with the, the, the great heat. And it's, it's almost to me as I, I look at it as if God looks at mankind on the earth and in essence says, all right, I'm no longer going to provide men with good health and fresh drinking water and beautiful sunshine in which to continue their rebellion against me. I'm going to take all the good things that I provide them, but they do not acknowledge this from me. I will take it from them. And he does. And he's free to do it. I don't have any argument with it. Even if I wasn't saved, I wouldn't have an argument with it. He's God. Of course he gets to do that. I'm just a pipsqueak and worse. Verse 10. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. The effect that this had on them is they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And here it is again and did not repent of their deeds. So Satan's such a big shot. The Antichrist is such a big shot. The Bible says that we're not to make an, a, 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 a railing accusation against the devil. We're to leave that to the Lord. So I'm not making a railing accusation against him. But Satan thinks he's such a big shot. <laughs> He's got so much power and he's got so much in, in all of this. And here he is. He's the prince of darkness. And he wants darkness and all of his followers want darkness. And the Antichrist wants darkness. And God says, all right, you want darkness? I'll give you darkness. And I mean, there's some kind of a study that was done. I remember hearing a long time ago about you put a, a human being in an absolute pitch black, no degree of light of any kind coming into the room at all in that room, they will go mad in a, a surprisingly short period of time. You add a scorching 
you add ulcerated sores uh, to that darkness and it is such a torment that they gnaw on their tongues because of of the pain again what's happening another foretaste of of hell this for all of his horror at least it, where men are, they ha are alive, they still have the opportunity to repent. It, it still is temporal compared to God's description of the eternal lake of fire, which is interesting because it's called an eternal lake of fire, but it's also called outer darkness. How can it have fire and darkness all at the same time? But there's different kinds of fire. And here, here they are. They get a foretaste of hell. Jesus described hell as a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. And they just, they're just gnawing on their tongues out of, out of the pain. But there's no repentance. It doesn't produce repentance. They don't repent of their deeds. That's how much they loved their sin. By the way, this is the last reference in Revelation to a failure to repent and then the fifth angel poured out his bowl I'm sorry verse 12 then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east uh, might be prepared and so the bowl is poured out the river Euphrates it's very very narrow in certain places very shallow in certain places very wide in certain places and and all but here at this point in time as the judgment is is poured out uh, a, a, an opening a drying of that river is made such that great armies can come uh, from the east and we're going to see what they're going to be about in just a minute isn't it interesting to watch and the United States of America continues to be a, a great economic powerhouse but we have never seen in a long time the kind of competition that's coming out of the East, coming from China now, the national debt, that, or not the national debt, but the trade deficit related to China, the amount of U.S. dollars that Asia holds, the potential that they have for the disrupting of the American economy if they go to euros or some other kind of thing. Of course, they're heavily invested in this country, so it's kind of a, a, a bit of a, a two-way kind of a deal on things. But where do you see the rising economies of the world, the growing economies of the world? You see it in China. You already see it in Japan. They're already an economic powerhouse. Korea, same way, up and coming, but well on its way. India, interesting. Even today, I saw an article in... Uh, on an international newspaper was talking about India create, being potentially the greatest kind of uh, competition to China related to these opening up of the new markets. But you see the, the economy uh, starting to recenter itself or move in other directions in the world to the east. And it takes a lot of money to field the kind of armies that the Bible says are going to be fielded in the last days. But the economies are developing for that purpose. Remember now, what's going to happen here is, is then we head into the, to the last part of all of this, is that the Antichrist, at the very end of the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a revolt against him in northern Africa. He will go down and crush that revolt. But while he's crushing it, he will get news of an army coming to fight against him. He's had world domination up to this uh, place. 
But then they, the world begins to spot weakness, and he is definitely weakened by this point. He goes down to crush that re rebellion, and he hears about an army coming out of the north against him, which would be out of Russia. Uh, if things remain geopolitically the way that they are today, and an army coming out of the east. And he comes back up from the south, back up to the north, in order to fight against these two armies that are rebelling against him in the valley of Megiddo. In the battle of Armageddon, they do not gather initially with the idea that we're going to fight against God. This is the place that we make our stand, we thrust our fist at God, and we fight against Him. Originally, they come to fight one another, to destroy one another. But at the appearance of Jesus at His second coming, they unite together in their mutual hostility toward Him and then try to take uh, Jesus on. And, and that's the battle of Armageddon, and it's a very, very quick one-sided battle. And uh, Jesus uh, didn't have to put any deodorant on uh, that morning. He doesn't sweat or anything on His way to the Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and then establishing the thousand-year uh, kingdom. And so this is how all this happens. Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, one out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and one out of the mouth of, of the false prophet. And they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, it's interesting that uh, is each one of these, this unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and, and the false prophet, there is a, a demon comes out of them that then possesses the leaders of these great armies. And it is these leaders who think they're all in charge of everything, but they are under the control of a demon now. And, and Satan is only a murderer, and he's a liar, and he's a thief. And he, so it's under a demonic influence that they're coming together uh, for this battle. Isn't it, I think it's telling that uh, a demon is likened to a frog here in the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit's likened to a dove. Very appropriate, isn't it? So doves are beautiful. Got some that have nested in our backyard this year and, and all. Frogs are not so beautiful. They, they are kind of a demonic thing, at least in the eyes of my wife. We've had some frogs near our doors. We live near one of those retention ponds. My wife would rather see a rat than a frog. It's crazy. That's the way she is. Not crazy, but in terms of just how she views wildlife. And they, and they come right up under the, where the doormat is, and then even in the garage they get in there, and they go right up you know, where the, the foot place is, and they're up behind there, and, and, uh, and then sometimes they're right out in the open. She comes out the door, and, and there's a frog. She just hates it. I pulled up to the house it was a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening to something on the radio, some tape or something, or in my car or whatever, and I was listening to the last couple minutes of it. She and I were going to go out to get dinner and all, so I had said, okay, well, you know, we'll meet you outside and, and everything in, in the truck and, and all. So I'm in there finishing this thing off before I come, and then I hear the door open and I hear a scream. I thought, oh, that frog. Frog got back here again. 
And, uh, and I thought it was just like way out in the open of, of the garage and all. It was sitting. She opened the door and it was sitting right on the sill there. Well, you know, a man can only take so much. And I do have dominion over, over these, this animals. So I got that guy in, and I like frogs. I, I wouldn't mind them being all over the place, outside, but all over the place. So I got them in my dustpan and got them in the dustpan and all. I went to the backyard, and we, we back up on that retention pond. They got a lot of water in the retention pond. And I got that guy, just, I got good leverage. And, uh, and I took it, and, and man, that frog just... He's just like, like that, like the Olympics, you know. He's out, out in front like that. And I knew he was going to hit water because I threw him that far. So I knew he was going to be in the water. He was going to be okay. We like him to croak at night. We don't want him dead and all out there. And so we just said, you know, but, and, and I said, now, if that frog, if that frog comes back, we got a bigger problem than frogs. So we've got to look out for Look out for that. Remember that story uh, about that snail? I went up to that guy's house, big old mansion he's got and everything, knocks on the door and, and all. The guy comes to the front door and he looks around and can't see any. Nobody's knocked on the door. He just looks down. There's a snail there. Picks that snail, just throws it as far as he can throw that snail way out there. And about two weeks later, he had another knock on the door. And, and he answers the door and doesn't anything. And nobody's there but that snail. And he looks down at that snail. The snail looks up at him and says, what was that all about? <laughs> so I felt the same way with that frog. Just launched way, way out there. So anyway, so my thesis uh, on frogs, but, but that's, that's what the, the demons are likened to the, to the frogs here. And, uh, uh, and they come in and they, they possess these kings Isn't that and these generals most powerful men in the world at this time they have no, no defense against being possessed by the devil until Christ is in our hearts we are completely vulnerable to being deceived and possessed by the devil it is only as he is in our lives that we have a protection from that. Greater is He that is the Holy Spirit than it is in us than he that is in the world, speaking of the devil. And, and so they think they're in charge and they're doing, and they don't realize the devil's moving them around and all. And what happens with nations and generals and all of this kind of thing happens the same thing with an individual life. Apart from the Lord, I'm open I'm to, to being possessed by the devil, being led by the devil, and the whole time thinking, I'm in charge, that I'm in control. They're subtle enough to operate it that, that way. And then the Lord kind of a parenthetical statement that he makes here in verse 15. He said, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. He doesn't say that to Christians. That's, that's how he's going to come upon the earth. He's going to catch the earth unaware. You, thieves come unexpectedly. They, they take you by surprise. And that's how his second coming was going to take uh, the world and, and will by surprise. It won't take uh, those that uh, know the Lord and have lived this far through the great tribulation by surprise. So then he encourages those that know him. And he says, Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so he encourages those that still know 
him, love him, have somehow survived the great tribulation to this point, to remain watchful for his second coming, and to remain pure in the midst of just a gross uh, impurity. And they gathered these uh, armies of these three frogs and the demonic thing that's happening together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And so in terms of God's judgment being poured out during the great tribulation period, uh, this constitutes the, the finality uh, of that. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings as a result of his voice speaking. And then on the earth there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And so imagine, the world has known some pretty great earthquakes, haven't they? Even with that tsunami, remember there in Sumatra and the whole thing, and that whole ledge broke down. And that, that earthquake that unleashed that tsunami, it, it affected the orbit of the world. The orbit of the world was affected by that. And there's some people who look at this kind of thing and say, well, if you've got the greatest earthquake in the human history that's going to occur at this time, you've got the potential of a polar axis shift of the whole thing going out of orbit in a crazy kind of way and, and all order in terms of design and creation on, on the earth now slipping, you know, out of, out of control, so, so to speak. But the earthquake is, is like nothing that the world has ever seen uh, before. And the great city, we don't know if that's Jerusalem uh, or Babylon. Uh, nobody really knows for sure, probably Babylon. And the great city was divided into three parts as a result of the earthquake. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We'll talk about Babylon more starting next week and uh, chapter 17 and 18. And then every island fled away and mountains were not found. Now, we kid about the thousand-year reign of Christ, how we're going to rule and reign with him as Christians and serve him and, and his purposes during that time. And, and I'd like some place, and I kid around a little bit about something on the central coast of California. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the whole world. But the fact of the matter is, is that the world, by the time the Great Tribulation unfolds, is going to be unrecognizable. Sometimes people say, in the millennium, I want to, you know, serve the Lord in Hawaii won't exist as we know it today. You talk about islands that are going to flee away and disappear. Mountains are going to disappear. The entire, uh, uh, you know, surface of the world is going to change as a result of, of this period. So maybe Ceres uh, would be the best uh, place by the time everything, uh, you know, plays out. But it's going to be... Everything's going to change. And then for everyone that has survived all of this, uh, verse 21, And great hail fell from heaven upon men, and each hailstone was, uh, uh, was about the weight of a talent. A talent is about 90, 100 pounds. Can you imagine being in a storm? Where are you going to go? Your ha the house is thrashed. Any building is thrashed. Even this one, concrete, steel all over the place. 
could not endure that. No vehicle will be safe to be in. And it's just going to come down 100-pound hailstones on the face of the earth. You say, well, I know what, that's weird. Why would he do that? The Old Testament penalty for blaspheming God was what? Stoning. Stoning. And the whole world is guilty of blaspheming God. And so he gives it the righteousness of his law. Applied, they will not accept the love of Christ, the righteousness of his law brought against, and he in essence stones the entire earth for its blasphemy of him. But does it stop their blasphemy? Nope. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. There's no repentance at all from them as a result of the judgment. Again, personal responsibility, blaming God. It's all his fault if he and all of that, and it doesn't wash. It's because of the wickedness of the world. Pretty sobering. Very sobering chapters. I am very thankful I am not going to be here in this world during that time because of my simple faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And it's coming. It's going to happen. This is beautiful, isn't it, right out there? We've got the olive tree planted. We've got them on both sides, all mirrored, so you look out whatever window you want. Beautiful shrubs. That's a nice wall, isn't it? That was a good idea, putting that in. Got the crepe myrtles all along right there. Got the flowering pears. Chinese pistache trees beyond that. That's a pretty nice grounds right here. It's going to be gone. People, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? The whole world, and I'm not saying we shouldn't take good care of the earth. We ought to do that. Oh, i got global warming, global warming, global this, global that. I wish, I wish the world would rise up against sin with the same fervor. Because that sin is going to force the destruction of all of this because it's fallen. And then God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Don't invest in this. This is going to pass away, and it's going to give away to what God has planned. Look at the whole thing that you're watching right now in the news in the last two weeks. you got the little fellow over there in Iran, and he is calling for the destruction of Israel openly, unapologetically, on the international stage, calling for their destruction. Again, not later, but sooner. And not calling for it, he is promising that it's going to happen at the same time that they are developing these nuclear weapons. Then you have Russia at a time in which the whole world is trying to come together to take and bring sanctions against them, try to deal with this thing in a non-military uh, kind of, of way and all, and they're getting in the way and, and trying to stop that. And, and there's very, very strong, widespread understanding in the international communion, community that what Russia is trying to do is they are trying to align themselves with the Muslim nations in order to be kind of a counterbalance to the power of the United States and Israel in the Middle East. Russia went from a world kind of 
uh, power of, of the world until they are very, very marginalized except for their oil and, and their weaponry. But in terms of power, there's no real awe of them in Europe. There's no real awe of them internationally. So where can they go? They can't go to China. China's becoming a world power in their own right. They're, they're just sitting there being left behind. How to gain a place of significance on the international stage? Align yourself with other oil-producing nations in the Middle East and make those your friends. And, and you see what's happening. Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 38, 39, where the Bible talks about in the last days an invasion is going to be made against Israel, a nation from the uttermost north, speaking of Russia. And then it names Iran by name is joining Russia in that Libya Turkey, all these nations that it lists down, all of these nations here are, are uh, Muslim-dominated nations to invade Israel in an attempt to destroy Israel. We may not have an Israel trip coming up. And when that happens, God will take and be upset about it, and he will rise up and defend the nation of Israel, and he will wipe out the invading armies. So what does it take? Maybe Israel, maybe the United States launching a preemptive attack on Iran and taking out all of their facilities and inflaming the most militant nations related to Islam in the world being then an affront to, uh, to Russia and what it is trying to do, it comes alongside of its allies. And then is, is even today, the ruler of Iran was laying out the fact that if you bomb us, we will send out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of troops and soldiers against the United States presence in the Middle East. They mean business. They're not politicians. They are religious fanatics. I remember, how much time do I have? Uh, I remember coming into the office years ago down on 10th and F. And I walked into the office and the staff had rigged up this TV with rabbit ears and the whole thing. And I was watching that compound in Waco on fire burning. And I said, what in the world is going on here? Well, they send in the forces and, they, and the whole deal and, and everything. And I thought to myself, no one in this administration understands at that time, that administration understands religious convictions. When people have religious convictions, they will die for those convictions. And that's what you have in Islam. But you, you, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is, you are looking today as a generation of people at the development of the prophetic picture that is so fully developed and, and so there before our eyes that all that it would take is just one provocation by Israel or the United States. I'm not saying that that would produce it. But one provocation could be the unfolding of the whole thing. It's staggering what we're seeing. 
And then all of this great tribulation comes then following that on the heels of it. It's amazing what we're getting to see. Amazing. God rules. God's in charge. Good to be on the right side of God because nothing else is going to survive the judgment that's coming. Let's stand together. We'll pray. If the worship team comes forward, that'd be great.